Thank you so much, ladies, for that wonderful scripture reading from our series in the book of Romans, chapter 11, and a happy Mother's Day again to all of you moms out there, spiritual moms and moms-to-be who are watching. Uh, thank you also to Jeffrey for that wonderful tribute to our moms uh, today. We honor you and we bless you. As you open up your Bible to Romans chapter 11, let me uh, begin this message with a story. Perhaps you're familiar with the uh, classic book by John Bunyan uh, called Pilgrim's Progress. It's the second best-selling book of all time right behind the Bible. Uh, there's a section of that book that uh, deeply moved me years ago when I, when I first read it. Uh, towards the end, the main character, Christian, uh, who's been on a journey to the celestial city, which is a metaphor for the Christian life, uh, veers off of the difficult path to try to find an easier and a smoother way. Uh, that's when he and his traveling partner named Hopeful uh, get captured by the vicious and sadistic giant named Despair. Uh, the giant had found them sleeping on, on his property. He grabbed them. He brought them back to his home called Doubting Castle and threw them into his dungeon. And uh, that's when he began to beat them merci mercilessly. And this continued to happen the next day and the next day and the next day. Uh, so there they were in the dungeon, uh, captured, uh, behind thick walls, behind a locked cell door, uh, completely powerless before a sadistic giant with seemingly no hope. Ladies and gentlemen, brothers and sisters, uh, guests who are watching this morning, I have a question for you. Have you ever been to the dungeon of despair? Have you ever faced some problem in your life where you see no way out? Have you ever had a family member get, get diagnosed with a, with a serious illness? Maybe even right now, a family member get diagnosed with coronavirus. Maybe even right now, you're facing some financial difficulty. You've gotten laid off, or you're on furlough, or you are now unemployed as a result of this economic uh, downturn. Have you ever been to the dungeon of despair? Uh, for some of you right now, this crisis uh, isn't really affecting you in a huge way. Maybe there's some inconveniences for you, uh, but for the most part, you're good and you're safe and you're okay. And we rejoice with you. Uh, we hope that you're productive during this time. But listen to this message because you might need it someday. Others of you, uh, right now, you're specifically in the middle of this crisis and you are sitting in the dungeon of despair. I know that applies to some of you watching today, and I want you to listen to this message very carefully because it is just for you. For all of us, uh, there's a very important question that we need to ask, and it's this question, how can we retain our hope in Christ when there are so many things that threaten to leave us in despair? Please turn with me to Romans chapter 11. In our text today, Paul uh, gives the church some timeless theological principles that apply to them in the first century, but I am convinced also apply to those of us right now today living in the 21st century. The title of the message this morning is, Our God Never Breaks His Promises, Not Today, Not Yesterday, and Not Ever. I see, we as human beings, sometimes we, we make promises, but we fail to break, fail to fail to make good on those promises. We sometimes break our word, but our God is not like that. Our God never breaks his promises, not today, not yesterday, not ever. And in our passage today, we will see 
that despite how things may have looked despairing for those at the church in Rome, our God is faithful to his word. We will look at this ancient lesson and then we will also apply this right now in our lives uh, today. So that's where we're headed. Uh, Before we go there, would would you pray with me and ask for God's help for our time in his word today? Let's pray all together. Bow your heads right there on the couch and let's ask for God's blessing on our time. Heavenly Father, thank you for preserving this text, 2,000 years almost. And now, God, today, this morning, we have a request. Would you take these words written in the first century and cause them to leap off the page for your people? Holy Spirit, would you speak today? We ask that you would show mercy toward us, even in our despair, and that we would hear your voice. Uh, Your word says in Psalm 29, the voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord thunders over the mighty waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is majestic. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The Lord breaks in pieces the cedars of Lebanon. The voice of the Lord strikes with flashes of lightning. The voice of the Lord shakes the desert. The Lord shakes the desert of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord twists the oaks and strips the forest bare. And in his temple all cry glory. And so today we would ask this morning that you would allow your people to hear your powerful voice for the sake of your son, Jesus Christ, and his reputation. And all God's people watching said, amen, amen. Type amen if you're watching. Good. So here we are, turning your Bible to Romans chapter 11. The context here was that Paul was writing about Israel's rejection of the gospel and the implications for this in light of God's word not failing. Uh, remember, remember chapter 9, verse 6, uh, Paul says, it is not as though the word of God has failed. And in chapter 9, Paul considered Israel's rejection of the gospel in light of God's sovereignty. In chapter 10, he considered their rejection in light of their own sin and their culpability, meaning their guilt. And now we reach chapter 11. Keep in mind, Paul is writing into a very stressful situation facing the church at Rome. Most of the Jewish community there had decided to reject Jesus and his claims to be their Messiah. And believe me, this was no small issue for them. This split their community. Imagine a son becoming a Christian but his parents rejecting Christ. Or a wife but not her husband trusting in the Lord. I'm not sure many of us today can grasp how confusing and hurtful these conversations were in that first generation following Christ. Or maybe some of us can. Nonetheless, Paul has been speaking into this stressful situation, which they woke up to every single morning, and he begins chapter 11 by addressing their greatest fear with a question. Verse one, I ask then, has God rejected his people? I ask then, has God rejected his people? Because so many had not believed in Jesus, the conclusion many were reaching, Jews and Gentiles, was that God was finished with Israel. Uh, They sinned, they turned their back on God, and so God washed his hands of them. By the way, isn't that how we think too? When trouble comes, when despair comes, when we get bad news, for some reason our first go-to response is to assume God has abandoned us. And he has abandoned his promises. He has left us hanging in our hardships. He has let go. It was their first response too. Has God rejected his people? Paul's answer is vigilantly strong. By no means. He says, 
By no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. So Paul says, if I'm not rejected and I'm an Israelite, we know God has not stopped working for the salvation of his people, the Jews. He has not ever stopped working for the salvation of his people, the Jews. There's a wonderful ministry today focused on Jewish evangelism called Jews for Jesus. They estimate that there are between 30,000 and 125,000 Messianic Jews in the world today. Now, that's not a very large number, and they admit that the work they do is slow because Israel still, by and large, rejects the gospel. However, uh, the, the same remnant that began in Paul's day continues in our day. Uh, at the Jews for Jesus headquarters in San Francisco, they have a sign that reads, Jews for Jesus established 32 AD, give or take a year. Uh, this tongue-in-cheek marker reminds the body of Christ that against all odds, God has kept a believing remnant from the day after Jesus' resurrection until today. This remnant is a testimony to his grace and proof that God has not abandoned his people. God has not given up on the Jewish people, neither has Paul, and neither should you. Why? Because God never breaks his promises. Not today, not yesterday, and not ever. And so at this point, we will move to our second movement, uh, not yesterday, as Paul kind of walks back into the distant past to say that uh, in the past there was a prophet named Elijah who made the same mistake. He thought the same way. He thought that he was the only God-fearing person left in all of Israel. And he addresses this in verse 4. Take a look. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too at the present time there is a remnant chosen by grace. Follow his argument. Uh, just like in Elijah's time, so now, Paul says, God has also saved a remnant, a small group of people, some of who were already in the Roman church. Therefore, how can you say God has rejected his people when he is saving his people? You can't. Israel is not rejected. Why? Because there is a faithful remnant. Look around, Paul says, and you will see God's grace is still at work. Uh, see, here's the lesson that we need to learn uh, today. Let me put it up here on the screen. God is always at work, yet often in ways that we tend to overlook. God is always at work, yet often in ways that we tend to overlook. You see, there was, there was a stumbling and a hardening for some, but not all. Paul says it's only partial. It's not total. God was very active in Paul's day and in Elijah's day, though somehow, somehow uh, people missed it. But if we're honest with ourselves, ladies and gentlemen, don't we sometimes do the same thing? We often do not have eyes to see God's grace. We, we have a worldview that looks for the majority, but that's not always how God thinks. All God needs is a remnant. God is always at work, yet oftentimes it's in ways that we, humanly speaking, would tend to overlook. Now, I confess that this is a struggle for me, especially when we face times of despair. Sometimes I get so focused on my problems that I miss what God is quite obviously doing around me. It's like I, I choose not to see those things. Uh, you know, on a personal note, some of you know that 
Our family's been struggling the past couple of months because my father-in-law was diagnosed with COVID-19, and by the mercy of Jesus, he was miraculously healed. It's an amazing story. I'll tell that whole thing at another time. But there were some very dark days in there. Humanly speaking, the odds were not in our favor, but right in the middle of that, God was at work ministering to us and to our family through his word and through each other and through prayer. There's no doubt about that. Because what we realize is that through that whole ordeal, God was not just doing a work physically in my father-in-law, he was doing a work spiritually in our, our family, growing us in our faith in him and preparing us and our family and our kids for what will inevitably be more trials in the future and perhaps preparing us to help others better who face similar circumstances. You know, you know, I saw this quote this week that I thought was helpful from Tony Evans. It says, sometimes when you're in a dark place, you think you've been buried, but you've actually been planted. And that is so true. Some of you right now, you feel like you've been buried. But God has a much bigger plan than we often realize. When you face a trial, it's not always just about you or even your family or just about your church or even your country. God has bigger plans to fulfill his larger purposes, plans that we may in fact not even see in our lifetimes. Uh, did you ever think that God may be working something in your family right now in order to set up a situation for your great-great-grandchild in the year 2065? It's true. But you've got to believe that God has a bigger plan and accept your part in that plan. All right, let's go back to our text in the book of Romans and drop down with me to verse 11. Uh, Paul goes on to ask another question. He says this, so I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? In other words, what was the purpose of their stumbling? Was it so that they might fall, meaning fall beyond recovery, that they might be abandoned altogether? This, listen to Paul's answer. He says this, by no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. So track with his thinking here. What is Paul's logic? What's the purpose of God in the stumbling, the hardening of Israel? It is not gonna be the final abandonment of Israel as a whole. Rather, God's purpose for Israel's unbelief and hardness and rejection of the Messiah is twofold. So that A, salvation would come to the Gentiles, which is amazing, right? So even in their unbelief, because of God's kindness and mercy, Israel's season of faithlessness will actually lead uh, to the Gentiles coming into God's kingdom. This is, this is not a wasted chapter in history. It's serving to expand God's kingdom. A, salvation might come to the Gentiles, and B, Paul says, and this will make the Jews jealous. So what, what is this about jealousy? Pastor Bob talked a little bit about this last week. It kind of reminds me that in our home, just, just this week, our, our kids were expressing some sibling jealousy over a group family text because the oldest child was jealous that the younger child uh, didn't have to abide by certain rules and we were more strict back in the day and so that they were jealous of what the younger child could get away with and uh, you know they were expressing that uh, sort of bitterness over this, this group test. A any of you older siblings have some, some godly sibling jealousy out there? Just raise your hand. Just can I get an amen? Yeah, I hear you out there. You need to confess some unforgiveness in your heart towards the Lord today. I, I hear you. Kind of like that, 
uh, we Gentiles are like the younger brothers and sisters, and we are to invoke jealousy in the heart of the Jews who see that we Gentiles are now considering ourselves to be children of Abraham too. Uh, We're saying that we are true Jews. We Gentiles have the Messiah as our Savior and our Lord. And all the promises of God are yes and amen in Jesus Christ. And they should see that. And if God were to lift the veil, one day they're going to start saying, wait a minute, those promises are ours. The Messiah is ours. The, the, The forgiveness of sins is ours. The new covenant is ours. We too will go and embrace Jesus as the Messiah. And so we are to make them jealous. Think of the situation kind of like the story of the prodigal son. Uh, We, the Gentiles, are like the younger son who got to be brought back into the family. And the whole spirit of our interaction should be like the father going out to the older brother saying, come on into the party. You belong here with us. But we say that with a spirit of respect and a spirit of love for the Jewish people and a spirit of humility knowing that it was all by grace Right, Paul said back in verse 6, for if it were by works, then it would not be grace, and grace would no longer be grace. And so there should be a humility about this, knowing that we know we're saved by grace. Salvation is from the Jews, and the wonder of it all is that we Gentiles get to be included. This is God's master plan. This is why Paul gives this metaphor from gardening. He says God's master plan is like this massive olive tree. Some of the branches that were the Jewish people, though, have been broken off because of their unbelief or their lack of faith. Meanwhile, there were some Gentiles who are like a wild olive shoot, and God has grafted them into this same tree, and now they're bearing fruit. Paul is giving us a warning here. Look at verse 18. He says, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. For if you, Gentiles, were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted, contrary to nature, into a cultivated olive tree, that's the tree of Israel, how much more will these, the natural branches, those are the ethnic Jews, be grafted back into their own olive tree? Now, I have to confess, this whole grafting thing is like so outside of my normal experience. I read this and I'm like, olive branches, shoots, grafting, what in the world is going on here? To understand Paul's point, we've got to understand this principle of grafting. The process of grafting is still done today, actually. Perhaps some of you out there who are more advanced gardeners, you've done this yourself, where you take a branch Uh, from one plant with certain characteristics and you add it to a second plant with different characteristics and you combine them to make something completely new. Uh, One example, in the year 1898, horticulturists took a branch from a Macintosh apple tree which had great taste but did very poorly in, in cold weather and this was added to the Davis apple tree. Davis apples did not have very good flavor, but they were very resistant toward the cold weather. And so by mixing the two together, they created the Cortland apple tree, uh, which was an apple tree that produced apples with both great flavor and hardiness because it's, it's, one of the most, it's one of the slowest apples to brown when it's cut open. A new and wonderful creation made possible based on grafting in the same way. Paul is saying that by adding the Gentiles into the already existing work of God with Israel, 
a new beautiful thing called the church has been created. But notice this is a warning to the Gentile believers. This is a warning not to become arrogant because just like some of the original branches were broken off because of their unbelief, so too the Gentiles could be broken off too if they were to slip into unbelief. See, Paul has noticed that some of the Gentiles in the church at Rome had, be, had been becoming prideful, prideful about their acceptance of the gospel, as if they had something to boast about. But it's not even your tree, he says. As if they had something to deserve praise here. No, says Paul. It is God's kindness and God's grace alone, his mercy and love alone, that has allowed you to join the richness of God's kingdom program. Now, let's just pause for a, for a moment of application and ask ourselves this personal question. We who are Christians, what is our attitude towards those on the outside who do not yet believe? Are we becoming arrogant ourselves at times? Do we look down upon them as if we are smarter than them or more humble than them or more righteous than them? Is that spirit of pride still in our midst today? You know, Chuck Swindoll, the chancellor of Dallas Seminary, said, I find few things more repulsive than an arrogant Christian. Grace, friends, is a call to this profound sense of humility. We ought to all say, there but by the grace of God, so too go I. So Paul says the Gentiles should not be puffed up and said there should be a respect for the Jewish people because as he says in verse 18, you don't support the root, the root supports you. Imagine being disrespectful to Jews. We have a Jewish Bible. We have a Jewish Messiah now, at this point, let me just make a brief comment about the evil of anti-Semitism. Anti-Semitism is a hostility or a prejudice toward Jewish people. This is an evil that crops up in every generation. You know, we saw this with, with Adolf Hitler in World War II. We see this in our day with Islamic extremists like Hezbollah attacking Jews. We even saw this in our country a few months ago with the October Tree of Life synagogue shooting. We've seen this crop up throughout church history, and brothers and sisters, in our shame, we have to admit, we sometimes have even seen this crop up among followers of Jesus Christ. These things should not be. Like the Apostle Paul, we should be outraged by a sense of pride in the church out of love for God's chosen people, the Jews. However, I say that to say that there's another thought today that I'd like to disagree with, namely that in an effort to avoid anti-Semitism, some Christians say that maybe we shouldn't even be sharing the gospel at all with Jewish people because it's so offensive. Let me just say, based on our text today, that the Apostle Paul would not agree with that conclusion or that way of thinking. He went into every synagogue he possibly could to share this message. Theologian N.T. Wright said, to, to not share the good news with Jews would be the ultimate form of anti-Semitism. Withholding the hope of the gospel and the future hope of the Jewish people promised in the scriptures. And this leads to our third movement. As, as Paul ventures out into the future and says God will never break his promises, not today, not yesterday, and also not ever. Not ever. In fact, I want you to just drop down with me to verse 25. Let me put that on the screen. Paul says this, 
I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Notice that word, until there. That word is filled with such hope and such excitement, isn't it? What's going to happen after the until? Paul is saying, don't assume that their rejection has led to God's rejection. It has not. Paul has told us that their hardening was only partial. It was not total. And he will now begin to explain that their hardening was only temporary. It is not going to be permanent. Israel's unbelief is not only not total, it is also not final. Paul says one day Israel's faith will be restored. Uh, Drop down to verse 12. Paul says, "Now, now if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will, will their full inclusion mean? Now what does that phrase mean, how much more? Something even greater than the salvation of the Gentiles awaits the full inclusion of the Jews? Something even more glorious follows the full number of both Gentiles and the full number of Jews coming into the kingdom of God? What is that? Well, he tells us in verse 15. For if their rejection, let me put that up there, for if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? Ladies and gentlemen, I'm starting to get really excited. Now, I take this to mean that this is what will occur at the end of this age, at the consummation of this age, at a final end times resurrection. In other words, God's purpose is is to let Israel go into a season of hardness so that God's kingdom would go to all the nations. And then at just the right time, when the full number of Gentiles has come in, God will lift the veil and take the hardening away and they will return to be part of the people of the Messiah and then Jesus will come back and raise the dead and we will forever be with the Lord. Uh, The Old Testament actually prophesies this in Zechariah 12. God says, and I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, They shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn son. There will be a great national day of repentance for the Jews as a whole. And when that happens, Jesus will return. See, this is why he said things like in Matthew chapter 23, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And so Paul says this in verse 26, and in this way, all Israel will be saved. Now, New Testament commentator Douglas Moo, theologically speaking, says the first clause of verse 26 is the storm center in the interpretation of Romans 9 through 11 and of New Testament teaching about the Jews and their future. This leads us to so many different theological questions. Who exactly is referred to here by all Israel? Are we talking about ethnic Israel? Are we talking about spiritual Israel here? These are some deep theological questions, and and there there are basically two theological camps that answer these questions very, very differently. Good, godly brothers and sisters in Christ disagree on this. On the one hand, you have dispensationalism, which says that some of the Old Testament promises made to the Jews still await a future fulfillment. And this system emphasizes a discontinuity between Israel and the church. On the other side, you have covenant theology, 
which says that the Old Testament promises to Israel were more non-literal and they've been spiritually fulfilled uh, ultimately in Christ. And so this system emphasizes the continuity between Israel and the church. And then in the middle, there's kind of this uh, middle system that's called progressive dispensationalism, which is where I personally land on this issue, which kind of sees the value in both systems. Now, now to get some clarity on this, uh, I sat down with one of the experts on this issue this week, who was also one of my seminary professors, and we recorded a 10-minute a Zoom call together. And so I'd like for you guys just to watch this, and we'll play this at this time. Well, I'm here today with uh, one of my professors from seminary, Dr. Daryl Bach, uh, the Executive Director of Cultural Engagement and Senior Research Professor of New Testament Studies at Dallas Theological Seminary. So uh, welcome to the Northeast this morning. Thanks for joining us on the call. Uh, Daryl, thank you for taking the time. Uh, it's my pleasure. It's good to join you. And just think, I don't have to get on a plane to do it. It's really, you know, the new normal is really strange. Uh, I've never thought I'd be so busy in park. Uh, I never thought I'd visit so many places without going anywhere. So uh, it's really, it's a pleasure to be with you, David. Well, Daryl, let's just be honest. You've always been busy. Daryl has written <laughs> over 40 books, um, including the well-regarded commentaries on Luke Acts. Um, he's been president of ETS, a consultant for uh, Christianity Today. Uh, I was first introduced to you with your book, Progressive Dispensationalism, long before I went to Dallas and appreciated your understanding of how to think about these issues. Uh, we're in the middle of a series through Romans, a uh, six-month series, and we've made it to chapter 11, so I've decided to call in the big guns for some help with this. Um, as you've been thinking and studying this for 20, 30 years, how do you see Paul speaking about Israel in this argument that he's making in Romans 9 through 11? Well, you know, some people view Romans 9 to 11 as a parenthesis, but it really isn't. It's a fill-in on the program of the gospel as it involves peoples as opposed to individuals. And so 9 to 11 deals with the relationship between Jews and Gentiles. And if you just do the math, once you do Jews and you do Gentiles, you've kind of covered everybody. But the question becomes, who's he talking about when he's talking about Israel? And this is actually made very clear early in the unit, which runs from Romans 9 to 11, in verses 1 and following. Let me just read these verses to you, because I think they make clear where Paul's concern uh, resides. It says in verse 1, I'm telling you the truth in Christ. I'm not lying, for my conscience assures me in the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that my, I myself were a curse cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, my fellow countrymen who are Israelites. So he's not talking about Israel belie believers who come out of Israel, what we might call today Messianic Jews. He's talking about the people who don't believe. So when he's talking about Israel, he's talking about the problem of how could the promise of a Messiah, which was for Israel, come to Israel, and so many in Israel not accept it. And so when he has Israel in mind, he has unbelieving Israel in mind. It's not any kind of new Israel. It's not the church. It's not Gentiles. It's not any of those categories. His concern is for the mass of Jewish people who currently do not believe and what the future of that mass of people is across the generations. That's where his, his concern resides. That's uh, very well said. Thank you for making that really clear. So in, as we get to Romans 11, then, 
Do you see a, a future for ethnic Israel just individually, or do you see a corporate future here? Or what do you see going on in Romans 11? And is there a role for Gentiles at all? What role do we play? Yeah, if you look at the passage, you know, you've got the image of a tree, you've got the image of branches, you've got original branches that are cut out, that's a reference to Israel, you've got other branches that are grafted in, that's a reference to Gentiles, and then you've got the image of the possibility of regrafting in the original branches, which of course is unbelieving Israel again, coming back in because it's been cut off from the tree, the tree of blessing, the tree of promise, the tree that, you know, there are lots of ways to think about what the tree represents. It's basically uh, those who are benefiting from what it is God has offered in the gospel. And so, uh, so the idea is, is that one day there will come a time when unbelieving Israel will respond. And part of the catalyst for that are the Gentiles who move them to jealousy, which means that they're um, personal integrity, the quality of the relationship with God, the way in which they connect to God, interact with God, um, the authenticity of their character and witness uh, draws Jewish people to God. And, the, and Paul fully anticipates a time when many Jews, the mass of Jews, if you will, will be responsive to this in the branch that has been pulled out, if you will, uh, will now get grafted back in. That's the hope that we're talking about. That's not just individual Jews. There are promises related to who Israel is in the program of God that that's a part of. You have any doubt about that? Acts 3, 18 to 22 says that what is left to happen has been described in the prophets. And they don't tell you to go back to the prophets and then reread the prophets in a different way. No, the way they say it is the way it will be. Wow. And so, so you're not just developing this idea from just Paul's writings or the New Testament. You're reaching back into some of the prophetic texts and saying there seems to be a future here for the Jews that has not yet been fulfilled. Is there one or two places in the Old Testament that you think that that's really, really clear? Yeah. And I think it's important to understand the order in which I'm doing this. The New Testament text, which for some people, the New Testament kind of overrides and reconfigures the Old Testament. That isn't what the New Testament is doing. It does expand some of what the Old Testament does. It does develop some of what the Old Testament does, but it doesn't abandon what the Old Testament's already committed itself to. And so there are texts, the beginning of Isaiah 2, uh, there's a text in the middle of Isaiah 19 that pictures, you know, former hostile nations like Egypt and Assyria building a highway to Jerusalem to come and worship God. And so the pictures of a very... Uh, of a history within this earth and within the nations of this earth, uh, completing itself in a full realization and reconciliation, which ultimately is what the gospel is about. We don't just reconcile individuals to God, we reconcile peoples to one another through God in Christ. And so this pictures this, and the idea is one day, Jews and Gentiles will be side by side in the same seats, in the same chairs, in the same uh, place, worshiping God together, being focused on Christ. And that's also the picture of texts like uh, Revelation 4 through 7, where many tribes and many nations will be engaged in the worship of God. One of those nations will be the people of Israel and the promises related to them. What a wonderful hope we read here. So in your study of the scriptures, uh, you, you would see something like a replacement theolo theology as as problematic and uh, not fully understanding those texts? Is it, it, am I 
understanding your view correctly there? Correct. To the extent that replacement means that the church has so replaced Israel that Israel has dropped out of the plan of God, that's not a biblical idea. Yes, the church is a representation of the people of God in the current era. Yes, it is the recipient and bearers of the promises of God through the Old and New Testaments. All that is true. But if we lose the commitments that God has already made in his faithfulness to the people of Israel in the process and suggest that somehow they are out of a hope for the future, uh, then we have short-circuited the commitment to reconciliation that God has made. Now, that does mean that Jewish people have to respond in faith to Christ. They don't get it automatically. They don't bypass the cross. Um, it's true for every person. They get there through the benefits that Christ provides. But having said that, there is an opportunity for Jewish people to embrace the gospel, to be responsive to it, and to come into the same place of blessing that God originally committed himself to offering to the Jewish people through the promise of a seed, a seed of Abraham, who of course ends up being Christ. Well, this kind of leads me to my final point. Here we are in the 21st century, uh, in our church, it's largely Gentile. How is this argument that Paul is making here in Romans 9 to 11 relevant to us in our hearts? How does this come to home and impact us in our day? Well, it reinforces the core calling that the church has with regard to people outside the church, which is the Great Commission. Uh, we're to take the gospel, make disciples of every nation, starting from Jerusalem, uh, Judea, another uh, Jewish location, Samaria, a fairly Jewish location in the middle of Israel, and then finally to the ends of the earth. And, uh, and in a sense, the Great Commission is going to circle back. You know, it went from Israel out, and now there's a mass of Gentiles, but Romans 9 to 11 says we haven't abandoned the commitment to the Jews. In the early part of the book, he said the Gospels were the Jew first and then to the Greek. And so, uh, we haven't abandoned that, but in the in in being who Gentiles are supposed to be and in living the gospel out the way we're called to live it, that's supposed to be a draw to any person, including a Jewish person, about the opportunity of new life in Christ, which of course is what the church is supposed to be testifying about to the world in what it does. So this is an exhortation to us to be authentically who we're called to be and to live in the power of the Spirit in a way that shows and points the way to God and our healthy relationship to Him. Wow. And have you um, had any personal experience with uh, ministries that are reaching out um, to those Jews who have yet to receive Jesus as their Messiah? And how has this impacted you in your, in your own efforts toward evangelism? Well, I've been on the board of Chosen People Ministries for two decades and have uh, really been involved in some of the books that you mentioned are books that related to topics uh, in, in a ministry sponsored through Chosen People. I've edited, I think, now five books with Mitch Glazer that deal with these topics. So yes, I've been very involved in these kinds of concerns. And anyone who kind of feels at a loss, how do I speak to someone whose religious background is so different from my own? Uh, Chosen People Ministries has a ton of resources one, to help you understand Judaism uh, better, and secondly, to equip you to be able to have those conversations and have some idea where someone else may be coming from as you have them. Great. Well, thank you so much for taking the time today. Uh, you've been such a blessing to the church uh, in all of your research. Thank you for your labor in the Lord, and uh, I 
I pray you're safe there in Dallas and uh, that you are able to finish your semester well. Thanks for taking a few minutes with us today to explain some of these things. It's my pleasure, and I just wish all the best to your crew there. And, and uh, you know, uh, may, you all, may we all represent the Lord well. Thank you. Well, I hope that was helpful to you. Uh, if you'd like to learn more about that, I put together some study notes that are available um, on the uh, email that goes out weekly to our church, or if you, if you need that, just contact me. and be had, happy to get that to you. If all of that was kind of a little bit over your head, that, that's okay too. The main point here at the end of Romans chapter 11 is God's master plan of salvation. God has used the Jews to reach the Gentiles, and one day he will actually use the Gentiles to reach the Jews, and it will come full circle. And so God is, is faithful to his promises, and Paul has just finished 11 chapters of doctrine and the theology of salvation for all people, and then he concludes by kind of getting to the top of the mountain and, and shouting hallelujah. Have you ever been on a hike up a mountain and then you get to the top and you just enjoy the view? That's a little bit like how I see the final verses here in chapter 11 as, as Paul gets has been scaling this steep theological terrain for 11 chapters. Look how excited he gets at the end of this section. He says this, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him, and to him are all things, to him be glory forever, amen. Friends, Paul says God is big and majestic and sovereign and his ways are beyond our comprehension even. His knowledge and his plans are just breathtaking and Paul gets a glimpse of his master plan for all of the ages and just shouts glory to be, be to our great and mighty God. And just like Paul, in the middle of our moments of despair, we too need to climb this mountain of God's sovereign plan, look out at the plan of the ages, and then throw ourselves into his everlasting arms, confessing that from him and through him and to him are all things, to him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Now here's the big principle that we need to take home today. We need to learn this. If God keeps his promises to his people, Israel, then that means God will keep his promises to you. If our God keeps his promise to his people, Israel, then God will keep his promises to you. Friends, our God never lets go. He never lets go. He is so faithful. He never writes people off. He will be faithful to keep all of his promises to them and his promises to you. That's what we need to know to help get us through times of despair. Uh, let me invite our worship team back up to the stage. And as they do, let me finish that story with which I began from Pilgrim's Progress. After Christian and Hopeful found themselves in the dungeon of despair, they began to pray. And suddenly Christian remembered something. He says, what a fool am I thus to lie in a stinking dungeon when I may as well walk at liberty. I have a key in my pocket called promise that will, I am persuaded, open any lock in this castle. 
And so they tried this key, the key of promise, in the dungeon door, and it opened. And then they went out and they tried the key in the castle door, and it opened too. And so they escaped from this castle, they escaped from the giant despair by using what? By using the key of promise. And here's a note from John Bunyan included at the bottom of that page. He says this, precious promises. The promises of God in Christ are the life of faith and the quickeners of prayer. Oh, how oft do we neglect God's great and precious promises in Christ Jesus while doubts and despair keep us as their prisoners. Friends, do you know God's promises to you? What are those promises in God's word that are so precious to you? For those of you who are mothers out there watching on Mother's Day, what are those promises that you are teaching the next generation of faith? What are those promises that you're teaching your children along the way? Allow me just to share a few of God's promises that have been especially meaningful to me in my life. Here's one that I've quoted again and again lately. Isaiah 54, 17. No weapon formed against you shall prosper. Psalm 30, verse 5, weeping may last for the night, but joy comes in the morning. Galatians 6, 9, do not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. For those of you facing financial stress, Philippians 4, 19, and my God will meet all of your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. For those of us struggling with temptation, 1 Corinthians 10, 13. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. Uh, here's one from our series in the book of Romans. And we know that all things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. And here's one for those of us who've lost a loved one recently. John eleven twenty five, 25, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. Uh, those are just some of the precious promises of God's word that are written for me and for, for you, and they are so relevant for us right in the middle of our cultural moment. We need them now more than ever. Read God's promises, claim God's promises, share God's promises, memorize God's uh, promises, speak God's promises to those around you and to your own heart. They are essential for the Christian life. And when you find yourself in the dungeon of despair, remember the key, use the key, and you too will escape. Let's pray together. Our Father and our God, we thank you for showing us your master plan of salvation. Thank you for being a faithful God. Thank you that you never break your promises, not today, not yesterday, and not ever. I pray for my brothers and sisters watching this morning that they might remember this key and use this key and escape from their own dungeons of despair into your everlasting hope. May we know in our heart of hearts this morning the words of that song, great is thy faithfulness, morning by morning, new mercies I see, all I have needed, thy hand has provided. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord unto me. We pray this in the matchless name of our promise-keeping God, Jesus Christ, our Lord and our all in all. Amen and amen.